Hey guys, it's PNN for Sunday, December 6, 2020. I'm your host, Brooke Hines, and tonight we have lots of stuff. Um, I did a long pre-record with uh, Kardec Krishnire talking about uh, stimulus, talking about the uh, uh, new chairs race in Florida, and uh, just got into all kinds of different kinds of trouble with Cardiac. So we've got, we got that coming up. We also have a Rick Spizak interview with Wendy Lynn Lee. Uh, and she's talking about uh, possible legal remedies for uh, as, as Trump is leaving office. Uh, will the, she, they discuss whether or not the Biden Harris administration will have a, uh, we only look forward approach and uh, they go into some other cultural issues like the proud boys and uh, stuff like that. So that's going to be fun. And then later at the bottom of the next hour, we have Janine Moloff with the justice court. And tonight she is looking at the Georgia race and the, and the new rules uh called the no car no vote rule. So this is stuff that Greg Palast has been covering. He did a um a breaking tweet today um <clears throat> to announce a lawsuit with regard to voters being purged. They want uh, I think it's 192,000 voters to be unpurged from the rolls in Georgia. Now, of course, if uh, if uh, Warnock and Ossoff win, there will be a Democratic majority ostensibly in the Senate. So everyone has their eyes on this race. The vote will occur. Election day is January the 5th. So this has to be ironed out within about a month with uh, holidays in between. Um, let's see. What else? I think I covered this, covered that, covered that. All right. Let's just get right to it. We're going to do a really quick beat this week because we've got so much to cover with, uh, other stuff. So let's just, we'll just get started with that. Okay. So, you know what's on what's on my mind more than anything right now is stimulus. You know, the uh, Nancy Pelosi turned down a one point eight trillion dollar deal that um, uh, Trump had put on the table. One point eight trillion. She turned it down because she didn't want to hand him uh, a victory going into the election. So instead of getting $1.8 trillion, which would have included stimulus checks for everyone before Christmas, now they're looking at a stimulus package that is half the size. Uh, it's around $900 billion. And um, there's no stimulus checks. Uh, there's uh, weekly unemployment at the federal level will be to the tune of $300 instead of $600, which we had uh, hoped for. And there's also this provision to shield businesses from lawsuits. So there's this tort uh, uh, 
provision in it. And uh, this is where that tort provision, that's where you've got the Republicans and you have people at the table by the short hairs. And you want to make sure that before you make any concessions with regard to whether or not uh, businesses can be, uh, corporations can be sued for exposing employees to COVID, uh, you want to make sure that everyone is taken care of. And so it's extremely alarming that Pelosi, first of all, that she turned down the first deal. And it's uh, alarming now that they're going to push through this new deal that's much smaller with no stimulus, a, a very small weekly uh, uh, stipend. And, um, and Joe Biden's out there talking about handouts. He's talking about how Americans don't want handouts. You know, let's let's talk about handouts, Joe Biden. Um, the uh, the stimulus that they're talking about now will have about let's see where did I write this down? Um, hundred sixty billion in state aid. Like that's the that's the big line item that state and local governments will get some some. Uh, provisions to shore up their uh, unemployment and, uh, and Medicaid uh, if, if they have expanded Medicaid and so on and so forth. So $160 billion in state aid. That's the, that's the big thing. Um, we already did a half a trillion dollars to businesses. That's $500 billion went straight to business, just off the top to, to corporations. And so now we're looking at Compare those two numbers for every state in the United States and all the municipalities are only looking at 160 billion in aid. I mean, that's less than half of of what corporations got. Uh, airlines alone got 32 billion. So you know, you do that 32 billion a couple, three, four times, three times, four times, and you get to about you know, where we're at with the state aid, there was $483 billion just in the PPP program, which was the, the program to shore up supposedly small business. But of course, uh, corporations got in there and, you know, got a million dollars here and a million dollars there. Um, so we're looking at a really awful package and people are going into the holidays, uh, like I've been reporting on for the last few weeks, knowing that the um, eviction moratoriums are going to be lifted at the end of the month. And so this is not a very happy time for people. And it's especially not a very happy time, I would imagine, for uh, businesses that every year look forward to Christmas time and the holidays to, uh, to make most of their sales so that their balance sheets are worked out for the year. So, uh, you know, the businesses have been taken care of. Uh, if they didn't get some of this stimulus the first time around, then, you know, shame on them. Uh, the people who need help right now are people in the service industry who have lost their jobs, uh, families that, you know, can't feed their kids and are looking forward to being evicted right after Christmas. And, you know, we've got the president and now even Bernie Sanders out there talking about handouts. So 
quote-unquote handouts is the big talking point today. And Joe Biden's saying, well, you know, people don't want handouts, and and, uh, this isn't what we're doing. Well, okay, fine, you know. I mean, uh, I don't care what you call it. Just get some daggum money in our pockets. That's that's the that's the bottom line. And uh, Bernie Sanders repeated that talking point. He used the word handouts in a um, interview that he had on MSNBC. And, you know, all of this is just, you know, this is this is not looking good Uh, in the conversation that I'll play for you guys in a little while with uh, Cardiff Krishnar, we talk about how the Biden administration is set up for uh, pushing an austerity uh, budget and the appointment or the uh, announcement of the intent for Nara Tandon to go through confirmation is uh, indication, I think, for most people who are paying attention that uh, as uh, the head person at the Office of Management and Budget, Neera Tandon, would be in front of any spending proposal. Now, Neera Tandon has been, in the past, very vocal about wanting to reduce what she called entitlements. And I know that technically Social Security is, is, is called an entitlement, and that's meant to be a positive thing. Because we pay into it, you know. This is this is something that literally we are entitled to. Um, it is it, it is a program that uh, workers who are working support the workers who are retiring or have become disabled, and each generation of workers supports those who are needing the program as they age out and as they become disabled. Um, so you know none of this is none of that is is a handout and when we say entitlements it's it has a negative connotation but you know everybody knows that i mean <laughs> you see on your taxes every time or or on on your paycheck you see how much you pay into social security every single paycheck and you see it at the end of the year on your taxes so um you know we're we're keenly aware that it's one of the largest items that we pay for in our taxes. Um, and now we've got Neer Tannen, you know, the former head of uh, center, or I guess she's still the head of center, center for American progress, which is a very uh, troubled organization Uh <clears throat> They closed down their publication, Think Progress, and I'm sure a lot of listeners were fans of Think Progress, but they closed it down when the writers and editors were uh, attempting to form a union, okay? That's that's why Think Progress went away. Nir Tannen is also known for attacking an employee physically. She uh, also outed a victim of sexual harassment in the most retaliatory way. I mean, this is somebody who should not be in charge of, of people generally, but definitely not in charge of something as, as big as the OMB. Now, as we talk about this, uh, listen for the discussion of uh, Mira Tandon versus uh, uh, Yellen. Because uh, Yellen, as the 
head of treasury and Mira Tandon as head of OMB, this is setting up a conflict between these, these two people. They are not generally on the same side of the uh, um, spectrum. If you're looking at things through the lens of uh, Obama people versus Clinton people, there is no closer ally to the Clintons than Mira Tandon. And so putting her at OMB uh, sets up this conflict with the Obama appointment that who will you know be re- reintroduced uh, through through Biden. So that's going to be interesting. And uh, uh, I believe that that uh, at the end of the day, there will only be one of those two standing. One or the other is is going to be pushed out. Um, I have to agree when uh, when Joe Biden says that, that that people don't want handouts. Okay, I have to agree as a person who does who writes messaging. I have to agree that that is something that uh, someone would put up on the whiteboard and say, you know, this is a, a message that we want to get across that these are not handouts. But that's not what he's saying, and that needs to be said that this isn't a handout. We pay our taxes. We're all in this together. And, you know, you look at the rest of the world, people who lost health insurance during the pandemic, no one in Canada, no one in the UK, Germany, France, Australia, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Denmark, Finland, Norway, not a single person lost their health care during the pandemic in those countries. But in the United States, uh, 14,600,000 people have lost their health care because they lost their jobs. And every one of those 14,600,000 people uh, having lost their jobs and having lost their, their health care is now in danger of being evicted at the end of the year. Um. Pelosi has to do Pelosi has to do much better and there's also some some really ugly stuff that's hidden in this whip, in this new stimulus bill and one is uh, that Pelosi and Schumer have a provision called surprise medical billing and they refer to it as the SNB um the provisions um are for physicians and hospital organizations that um, have federal aid through through this this kind of um, budgeting, and these are hospitals and physician groups in rural areas that are looking at this this program is is. What they're doing through surprise medical billing is they're fixing to cut off all of this $20 billion of support for rural hospitals. So, you know, again, we're in a pandemic and as part of a stimulus package, which should be shoring up these kinds of services and making sure that our health care is is uh, um, available to everyone, they're making sure that it is not available to everyone. So anyway, we've got a problem, Houston, we have a problem. 
and uh, hopefully we will um, hopefully something will uh, I don't know hit Nancy Pelosi on the head and and you know make her do things right for a while you know I mean it's it's it, 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 <laughs> it's incredibly frustrating that you know we just went through this super long election season and you know it was all about how bad the republicans are and you know we've got to get the democrats and so that you know people can can not live in fear of the pandemic and not live in fear of of uh, um, white supremacists and so on and so forth but then they get in power and the first thing they do is muck things up. You know, we had a $1.8 trillion deal on the table that had stimulus in it so that people would be able to remain housed and get through the holidays and get into the first of the year and hopefully be a bridge to when we have a vaccine, maybe in May. Um, And all of that is just, poof, it's gone away because Nancy Pelosi didn't want to do a deal with Donald Trump uh, before the election. So she screwed us. She screwed us super freaking hard, you know, to, to, to make a political point. And I got to tell you, I don't think anybody right now who is suffering appreciates how they've been used to make a, a, a political point about um, Donald Trump. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about this with Cardic. I'm going to leave that there. And we're going to come right back with Cardic uh, uh, Krishnire catching up. Looking right now at a number of different stories about how Nancy Pelosi is settling on a stimulus deal that is less than half of what was offered before the election. And uh, there's no new stimulus money in it for, for workers. She rejected uh, Trump's offer of $400 a week retroactive uh, unemployment. And now she's down to $300 a week. So she's negotiated herself down. Yeah. And that's, that's very, uh, very unfortunate because that that six hundred dollars a week oh, it, it barely kind of keeps up with uh, 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 what, what would be a, a living wage, and this would include obviously uh, uh, gig economy workers, or had included gig economy workers in, in the first uh, iteration of this when when it was passed in, in March. So I, I think what we're going to find at some point, congressional Democrats. And the Biden administration. I think right now everybody is singing Kumbaya. The Democrats kept control of the House fairly. To be noted that of the 27 most marginal seats, according to the New York Times, uh, entering this election, the Republicans won 26 of them. So that's uh, that's really an epic defeat. Statistically, that's improbable. I will tell you, even having been around during the 94 and 2010 cycles, which were wipeout cycles for the Democrats, there were more than one marginal seat the Democrats kept in each of those. Um, in each of those years. And in fact, I think the Democrats, in reality, a total of just one House seat, because the two, two others that flipped were redrawn North Carolina seats uh, from the redistricting. So 
the only seat that slipped was the uh, suburban Atlanta seat, which was uh, uh, the, the, the former Karen Handel seat. That's uh, sorry, where Karen Handel ran uh, flipped, and, and that was a uh, that's that's kind of Gwinnett and Cobb, parts of Gwinnett and Cobb counties in, in suburban Atlanta. The only seat that slipped in the entire country was the Democrat. So what I think we've seen happen is that there were a lot of these interests have lined up behind uh, the Democrats in the congressional uh, landscape that are not necessarily lined up behind uh, uh, Joe Biden, did not necessarily support him for president. We'll get more into that in a little bit. Now, maybe Biden is hoping they contribute now to his inaugural committee, and then if they contribute to his inaugural committee, voila, then then interests are aligned because all these people have been giving money to to Pelosi and, and the House Democrats and Schumer and the Senate Democrats. However, as of this moment, I think you, you, you have to look at the political basis of the people who got Biden elected being very different than the people who had voted for Democrats for Congress. In addition, I think you're looking at a situation where there are um, all over the country people who voted for Joe Biden and then did not vote for uh, Democrats down ballot. And, and that the opposite is true in Florida. There are actually people who voted for Democrats. Uh, down ballot who then voted for Trump at the top of the ticket. Trump was stronger Florida relative to uh, swing voters or split ticket voters than any, any other state in the country. But uh, he has a mandate to get these big stimulus done, is my, my point. He has the mandate to go to bat for the working class Americans who voted for him, but didn't trust Nancy Pelosi after her, her um, hair salon uh, uh, kerfuffle and then her refrigerator moment. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. why would you trust her to, to stand up for the working class after those things? Well, Pelosi's already getting uh, getting a little hot about this. Uh, she scolded a CNN reporter after she was uh, given a question about stimulus, and she said that uh, her handling of the stimulus is not a mistake. You know, the, the reporter was suggesting that. Uh, you know, hey, did did you negotiate against yourself? And she's already feeling like she has to raise her voice to deny that allegation. I think it's pretty simple, Brooke. If they had been more serious about this in August and September, the Democrats would be somewhere near 240 in the House and not at 221 or 222, whatever it could end up being, right? They, they, effectively, they effectively plus 15 to 20 feet down the drain by uh, their... Uh, uh, their, their stand, which was, uh, I, I have to say, an unprincipled stand, however much the Democratic establishment and Pelosi uh, apologists have tried to dress it up, right? And, and, and also, uh, incidentally, uh, Joe Biden has won the, the, the national election by 7, 7 million votes, but presidential election, the popular vote nationally, but probably put his election in jeopardy also, because it showed how ineffective the Democratic Party was as a governing party. Let me see if I can illustrate this uh, using using some Florida races. So uh, instead of talking about stimulus, instead of talking about uh, meeting the material needs of Floridians, you know, and Florida is a is a service industry state, a largely uh, working class state. Uh, instead of discussing how we would meet those needs, what the what the Democratic Party and uh, candidates like Donna Shalala and Mukarzal Powell did, we needed to expand the ACA and uh, and uh, allow people to buy into COBRA instead of you know, having any kind of large-scale health care for 
people without insurance who've lost their job during a pandemic. And then when they lose their seats, they turn around and they say, oh, it was because of socialism that we lost. You know, so it, precisely uh, the kinds of measures that they should have been uh, out there talking about, uh, which are social democratic solutions, you know, like get some stimulus to the people, make sure people can see a doctor during a pandemic. Then they turn around and they say, oh, no, it's exactly that type of stuff that made us lost, lose when they out absolutely never dipped a toe into any kind of socialism or, or defund the police or any of that. They were completely to the side. Yeah, you know how, um, how uh, poorly the Democrats in mind gave county have done at capturing the activist energy in that county over the last cycles and actually organizing and maintaining uh, a reliable infrastructure uh, a lot of it's been outsourced to NGOs on the outside who, who haven't uh, been particularly effective or organized either. So uh, the, the reality is they both lost, partly because of the, the poor Democratic infrastructure in that county, partly because of the uh, failure of the Democrats, led by Nancy Pelosi, to take action on stimulus, to take action on COVID relief in the middle of a pandemic, to uh, the optics of Nancy Pelosi, again, um, breaking... Uh, protocols, breaking norms, breaking lockdown, and and um, being this kind of champagne uh, liberal, this woman being liberal, going out and, and getting her hair done at a salon, uh, uh, stocking ice cream in the freezer. But all, all of this stuff optically had more impact on the racism in mind Gate County than the term socialism. Now, I am going to concede, Brooke, that the term socialism has a negative connotation in Miami-Gate County, parts of Broward, parts of Providence, and did probably have some negative effect on Democratic candidates in Florida, in South Florida. I will tell you, outside of South Florida, it probably is a meaningless uh, term uh, that had no impact on this election whatsoever. No one cared about the use of the term uh, in, in Texas, in Georgia, in, in, uh, in California, wherever, in Ohio. It, 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 it's an absolutely uh, uh, useless, absolutely uh, uh, garbage term. Obama was called a socialist. You know he wasn't. We know we kind of wish he was, but he wasn't. He won all those states. You know he didn't win Texas, but he won. He won Ohio. He won Iowa. He won Wisconsin twice. Once by a huge margin, by the way, in 2008. So the idea that somehow the term socialism has hurt the Democrats outside of South Florida, that somehow hurts the Democratic brand nationally, is absolute nonsense. Don't blame the, the bleeding, the Latino vote nationally on that term when you have Mexican-Americans in South Texas that supported George McGovern and supported Walter Mondale and most recently supported Hillary Clinton crossing over and voting for Donald Trump. Me, I can show you a number of counties in Texas where Mondale and McGovern ran better than uh, than Trump. Uh, excuse me, than, than Biden. And I can show you like 50 counties in the state where Dukakis ran better than uh, than Biden. That's how many there were. So uh, this has nothing to do with socialism, and it's an absolute canard, a, a red herring thrown out there by uh, I think the consulting class of the Democratic Party. I, I think they're probably responsible. I think you're probably right, and it's a form of retconning. You know, the uh, retcon is a, a word that's used in um, 
with regard to fictional work, you know, like the uh, Marvel Universe. And it's, it's when a new piece of information uh, it, it tries to change the interpretation of a previous event. And that's what they tried to do with this whole socialism narrative, is they, they tried to introduce the idea of socialism, which I don't care where you live. If you started branding the fire department or the police department as socialism, they would, uh, th people would, would bristle at that. They, they, they would be like, oh, I'm not for socialism. It would, it would, su it would sully the brand of, of, you know, these essential services. Elementary school, if you started calling that just, you know, socialist this and that, uh, especially in this charged environment, you know, people would, people would, would freak out. And I think that the uh, elites in the party and the money class are well aware of that and they're taking advantage of it. Yeah, pretty clearly. They, um, they want more free market or not even free market because I don't think uh, uh, the democratic establishment of donor classrooms free market. They're into crony capitalism, right? Um, they, uh, look, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm to the left, but there are things that there are places I would apply free market solutions. I'll freely admit that. However, there's nothing that's actually applied as a free market solution anymore in this country. Everything is, 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 is done because uh, this donor gives money to this Democrat or, or Republican who's an elected official who then awards a contract to this one, or, or, or they, they run the regulatory agency and their party is in power, so they write the regulations to favor one company over another. That's the way this country works. Right, it's that there is no free market. There's no, there's no out-and-out -out socialism, and there's no free market. We created this kind of mishmash of, uh, of, 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 I would call Levin socialism and uh, uh, crony capitalism. And so uh, the donor class is interested in maintaining crony capitalism. Not, they, they don't want the free market at all. I, I felt like there's a callback to where you were talking about the outsourced activist base in South Florida. Uh, it seems to me that the NGOs, especially in South Florida, are so connected to the crony capitalist base that it, it, it's hard to imagine them being very effective, you know, because there, there's so many no-go areas, you know, like, they really don't like to get into the environment and they really don't get into sprawl and they really don't get into privacy issues or anything that isn't funded by an oligarch somewhere. Yeah, the Republicans, many Republicans have become better on privacy issues than the Democrats. Uh, if you want to start with that issue, but um, in other issues, the environment, they don't go where they need to go, okay? We have all these kind of vague programs about climate change. And, and sea level rise, which are very, very important in southern Florida, very important throughout the state, uh, and in, obviously in other parts of the country. But uh, no specific campaigns coming from donors uh, about water quality and water issues on a mass scale in, in, in southern Florida. And in terms of the NGOs also and their interaction or lack of interaction with kind of the progressive activists on the ground, I would attribute this to the fact that these NGOs are, are into astroturfing, right, into paying, um, paying people to get out and create these, these kind of turnkey campaigns for their donors, for the people who give them money and give them grants. So if you have an energy of activists left over from, let's say, the Bernie Sanders campaign or from 
uh, a campaign for a progressive in a primary or state house or city council or, or something like that, or even in you know, Elizabeth Warren campaign, et cetera. You then, those people represent a threat to the organization that is making money off of being, quote, the progressive uh, organizers in an area. You then have these, these NGOs and their donors pushing back hard on any sort of independent progressive infrastructure that is created. So let's go back to Jane Town. Donna Shalala and Debbie Booker Cell Powell both were defeated. Uh, and uh, Joe Biden's margin, uh, is, uh, Hillary Clinton won Miami by 291,000 votes in, uh, in, in uh, 2016. Biden won it by about 70,000 in, in 2020. All of that is attributable. Some of it is attributable to, attributable to the label socialism. I, I will concede that, although I think that that is a smaller factor and it's a non-factor in the rest of the country, as I mentioned. But most of it is attributable to the fact that, one, the Democrats don't know their own audience. They don't understand the Latino community in Miami-Dade County and in Broward and in Palm Beach and in Osceola and Orange to a lesser extent and, and Polk. They, have, they haven't really done... The, the heavy lifting in terms of um, work and canvassing work and um, research uh, into developing a proper message for these communities. Um, and many of those messages revolve around what, what you would consider, quote, socialist programs, right? If you are going to talk about health care, you are going to do better in that community than talking about identity. If you're going to talk about uh, uh, the sort of things that the government can do to improve the daily lives of young, working-class Latinos and things, big, big ideas, big things like public work programs, et cetera, you're going to do better than say, hey, you're Latino or Latina. Donald Trump is a racist. He doesn't want immigrants to come to this country, vote for us. That's effectively the, the democratic mantra to these communities. So, um, the reality is you go from 291,000 vote plurality to 70,000 votes at the top of the ticket. Similar sort of numbers. Uh, we, we had a, uh, a state house seat where uh, Hillary Clinton had got uh, close to 58% of the votes in 2016, which flipped for the Republicans, back to the Republicans, the Republicans in the past, just uh, as one of three this time. Uh, we had uh, losses in two state Senate seats that were uh, seats that, that we had won at the top of the ticket in the past. Um, one of which was an incumbent, JJR. You have all of this happening because the party has decided, and I know we talked about this for years, Brooke. I mean, we're, we're, we're banging our head against the wall. They have decided to make racial and ethnic identity the, the basis for American politics. They are effectively, in a reverse sense, doing what George Wallace wanted to do in 1968, which is make uh, race the basis of American politics and your party affiliation or what candidate you were voting for. And they have failed with that because record numbers of minority voters voted for a Republican at the top of the ticket in Donald Trump this time. Now, there was some drop-off and you went down ballot where some of the minority voters switched back to, to Democrats in, in, in lower ballot race races. With, with Garel Powell, the Booker Cell Powell is an example of that. She, she outran Biden in her district. Uh, Merrick uh, Hagar, the uh, Senate candidate in Texas, even though she lost by much more than Biden did statewide, in the Latino areas of South Texas, she ran well ahead of Biden. So there were 
there were examples of, of, of minority voters returning to Democrats further down ballot. But the reality is this, okay? Uh, Trump got the highest percentage of, of, of the minority vote among any Republican since 1960. That's before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which kind of set in the, the, the that, that solidifies the uh, Democratic Party as the party of civil rights. Right prior to that, um, uh, Nixon uh, was probably more liberal on, on race than a lot of Democrats were. And in fact, uh, many of the more prominent Republicans, uh, uh, African Americans in the country, were open Republicans. You have, since that point, in the era, post-civil rights era, this is the best showing for a Republican in, 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 in among the minority vote in the country. And it was universal. It wasn't just the young Cuban Americans in Venezuela, Americans in South Florida, which is the, the narrative from members of the Democratic establishment and people in Florida uh, who are trying to explain why Florida, unlike the other 49 states in the country, trended heavily towards the Republicans this time. There's more to it than just, uh, than just Miami Bay County. Uh, in fact, uh, our friend Dave Crowder put out a map uh, uh, earlier in the week, which showed the, uh, the, the, the the shift towards uh, Republicans or Democrats in this cycle. And the only country, the only state of the 50 states that was dark red was Florida. Um, but also among African Americans, also among uh, we're talking about South Florida, also among Haitian Americans, Jamaican Americans, there were some bleed from 2016 to 2020, uh, and those are. Um, those are people of African descent, right? They're not, the socialism thing is, has nothing to do with that. They don't think about it in, in Dr. Valier, right, when they came here. So um, the, the, those communities, even Asian Americans in San Francisco, in Nancy Pelosi's congressional district, there was about a 22% drop-off from the Clinton number in 16 to Biden's number in, in 2020. Among Indian Americans, my ethnic subgroup, there was a huge drop-off even with Kamala Harris, who is Indian American or you know South Asian American on the ticket, there was a drop off, and I, I should mention Jamaican American also, and I'm just mentioned in Broward County there was a drop off among Jamaican Americans. So what has happened is that the Democrats have have no longer become aspirational for the minority community. Minorities voted Democratic for several generations after the Civil Rights Act of '64, not just because the Democrats have been the party of civil rights. But because of the Democrats were the party of aspirational programs, lifting people out of poverty, doing the sort of thing with government and activist government communities, pushed back against systemic and institutional racism. What has since happened since I would say 2000 and I don't know what the date is, but uh, 2010 maybe, the Democrats have become less class conscious, maybe because of the donor class, probably because of the donor class, more into okay, we need to keep these voters as part of our base. So why don't we just cynically appeal to them on, uh, on identity and say the Republicans are horrible, the Republicans are all racist, anyone who supports Trump is a racist. You don't want to be part of that racist party. You don't want to support that racist Republican. It seems to me that the same way there is a Maslow's pyramid in general life, you know, you've got – uh, your 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 basic needs at the bottom, and then you got self actualization at the top. It seems like material needs are are what drive people. And if the Democratic Party is going to vacate uh, any kind of you know recognition of class, then people are going to you know swallow hard and vote for the Republican who 
who at least recognizes that there are some material needs that, that need to be attended to. And this kind of, for me, goes back to this whole NGO thing, because it's been my experience that any issue that goes through any of these NGOs and almost all of, of the messaging, all, all of the work that they do gets put through this racial lens, where if you're talking about the environment, communities, that it's racism that is driving environmental destruction. And it, it, when they address uh, issues having to do with healthcare, again, through the racial lens rather than a class lens, what the message is, is that uh, not expanding Medicaid is a, is a form of racism. And so that's going to get turned back around on us with uh, cabinet appointments like Neera Tandon, who is famously in favor of quote, cutting entitlement, where you're set up so that Neera Tandon can say, well, if you're not in favor of cutting Social Security, then, then you're racist. If, if you're not going to uh, reduce the deficit, then, then that's hurting minority people somehow, you know, because that's, that's the only messaging that they know how to click into. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. Neera Tandon, she mentioned her. She, she, she's maybe the architect or the ultimate poster person for this um, this sort of thinking, where everything comes back to race, right? So for Tandon, anyone who opposed Obama was a racist, and for Tandon, anyone who supported Donald Trump was a racist. Seventy-four million people voted for Donald Trump. I, 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 maybe, I don't think I'm that many among progressives, but I, I, I may be. In fact, that I know a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump. Not one of them is a racist, okay? Mm-hmm. It, by my book. In fact, I would classify some Democrats I know as bigger racists, because I think I saw that again, the form of racism that is, uh, uh, you know, that they think they're perfectly tolerant people, but they're not. Um, so th- this, everything is being viewed within a racial lens, which prevents the Democrats from ever redeveloping a sense of class consciousness. And this is happening in the UK also with the Labour Party, where the Labour Party has become a party of the elite millennial kids in big cities who oppose Brexit, you know, who, 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 who are into uh, uh, social issues, they're into LGBTQ issues, they're, uh, they don't have a gun problem. And obviously in the UK, I think it's pretty good that gun ownership is severely restricted there, unlike here. Uh, but uh, these sorts of issues. So then what the Democratic Party has done is they've, 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 they've abandoned class awareness. They've effectively become the party of the elite, uh, of the rich people in society, which has had some benefit in terms of electoral politics in the suburbs, but it's had some definite uh, of, of definite of, of bad backlash in places like Florida and Ohio. The two ultimate swing states of the last generation are now safe Republican states, effectively. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and play the second segment now for you. Uh, cut a few minutes off of that just so that I want to make sure that we have enough time for Wendy's 
interview with Rick. So here's part two. Let me, uh, let me change uh, gears a little bit. I'm going to read you a quote. Uh, I'll read you the quote, and then I'll tell you who said it. Uh, the quote is, democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than their democratic state itself. That was Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, in 1938 uh, in a letter to Congress where he was talking about uh, monopoly power. He, he said, the next words he said were, that in essence is fascism, ownership of government by an individual, by a group, or by any other controlling private power. And so I wrote this quote in a piece on the Florida squeeze in 2017. I was, it was 2015 actually. And I was working with the idea of, uh, you know, how do we deal with, what do we do about all of the private influence in public policy? And of course it's only gotten so much worse than then. And now when I read this particular quote, what I'm reminded of is the consultant class in Florida and how, you know, this, this group of four or five, maybe six consultants, you know, they don't, they don't make the lion's share of their money on, on uh, campaigns and candidates. They make the lion's share of their money on lobbying. And so there isn't even, there isn't even an A to B kind of movement here with the, interest within our party being controlled by money. It is the exact same people. Instead of being a, a path A to B, it is just a single point. It's one dimensional. It is those people. So what we have ahead of us as we reorganize and we get a new state party chair, et cetera, et cetera, this is one of the things that we have to deal with. We have to uh, get a party together that is functional. So what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think the most important thing is that you uh, you, you cut out the, the, the consultants. And by the way, as, I, as we said earlier, Florida had the greatest swing um, from, from D to R between 2016 and 2020 in the country. And you're talking about a state that's two-to-one Republican. In the, last, um, the entire cabinet is Republican. Now you can't even win. You can't, oh, well, except for Mickey uh, Freed, who's a, who's a lobbyist. The uh, acquisition, right? So this goes back to the problem of discussing, and, um, and and you have a situation where the Democrats have made zero progress in the state over the course of 20 years. Whatever small gains we made in 2006 and 2008, and then in 2012, uh, 2016, they've all been wiped out. We have had 20 years, two decades, uh, starting after the the, the Gore defeat, uh, a, a succession of these kind of um, Democratic, these people who moonlight as Democratic consultants running Democratic campaigns, but, but make the base of their income lobbying the legislature and lobbying the executive branch is controlled by Republicans. Um, and even at the county level, and when they work in the county, the county commissions in, in many of these urban counties until very recently were controlled by Republicans. The only, the only county that has had a Democratic majority on this county commission since, uh, straight through since 2000 is Broward. Uh, even Miami Gate had a Republican majority at one point, or had 
with Coastal Republican majority, Palm Beach Federal Republican majority at one point, uh, Hillsborough and Ellis uh, have had Republican majorities at various points. Orange had a Republican majority until 2016. So, um, you, you know, you're talking about people who then make their money off of effectively cutting deals with Republicans and then also their um, their clients or corporations in the state. And not only corporations, but also entities like U.S. Sugar, Florida Crystal, uh, the associated building co- uh, contractors, uh, uh, telecom giants, Disney, uh, uh, Comcast, not Comcast is a telecom giant, but they also own Universal. So these sorts of uh, entities that are um, not going to be supporters of the sort of progressive agenda that you want to see Democrats stand up for. This might also explain why even on things like Medicaid expansion, you had very mixed messages coming from Democratic legislators. Um, and, and, and you had a, a number of Democratic legislators that chose to vote for a Republican judges that did not have Medicaid expansion. And then say, well, you know, I'm getting this member project in my district where uh, I, 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 uh, I'm getting like a golf course, a clubhouse built to state money, right? I mean, this is continuing, right? They get these little crumbs for their district. And they vote for this stuff. So I think what you have is, for many, many years, the Democratic Party in Florida has been funded by, effectively, these interests that I'm talking about, uh, with the consultants running campaigns, seeing people who lobby in front of the Republican legislature, make the bulk of their money outside campaign season on that stuff. Um, and then you also have the added influence of the teachers union, FDIU union, and some random uh, uh uh, lawyers, uh, file bar members, who, but that's not the kind of influence it used to be because part of the Republicans' success in the state has been making it so difficult to practice personal injury or tort law or, or, or workers' comp law in the state because the, the rewards are so minuscule and uh, effectively, you know, in some cases you might be able to kill people and, and, and save money in the state. I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, and they used to not be this way. I mean, in the 1980s and 1990s, we had some of the best product liability laws, that's consumer protection laws in the state. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of bashing the Democrats. Obviously, it's progressive work, but I have to say, you know, even moderate Democrats in the 80s and 90s in the state, they, they uh, had, had crafted a, uh, a, a, a system of product liability and workers' comp and, 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 and uh, securities litigation and all this sort of stuff that was uh, one of the best in the nation, right? And it was a great place. It was a place where you were protected as a consumer. It, 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 uh, from the corporations and from, uh, from medical malpractice also, from, from, from uh, uh, the insurance companies and the doctors, right? We had great med mal laws in the state. All, all has been destroyed by the Republicans. They've been in the majority with the help of some Democrats, as I was saying. And so now the trial bar, they don't have the kind of money to throw around anymore. Many, many of their younger members are more conservative. So um, you're, you're dependent on these, these sources of income, these sources, these fundraising sources, and these consultants who have a vested interest, this is the key here, in keeping the Democrats in the minority. So while I'm not a fan of Michael Bloomberg, I am not a fan of some of these national donors who throw tons of money into the state, I will take Michael Bloomberg's money since he's obviously he's trying to take over the state party, uh, Mayor Manny Diaz. Um, former Miami Mayor, Miami Diaz. I will take Michael Bloomberg over people who've been running the state party very gladly, uh, and then work to try and you know push him mitigate his influence for the future. But um, right now we have a party that effectively uh, the people who who have run the party have been involved with the party, and I'm not trying to impugn 
but the people who have actually been involved in the nuts and bolts operations of this party in Florida and the people who have made money off of this party and Democratic candidates are people who have invested interest uh, or at least have created a financial model uh, for themselves where accommodation with the Republicans is the is the path of least resistance and the most profitable path for them. So why we would why Democratic activists and other Democrats would trust some of these people to bring the Democrats back into the majority of the state, I'll never know. So my hope is, uh, even though, again, I'm not a fan of Bloomberg, I, I very strongly oppose the idea of him running for president, um, my hope is that he can come in for via, via Manny Diaz um, and, and, and just root the, the state party out of these, uh, these, these, these uh, I don't want to call them Republicans, Thank you. 
previous cycles, but Marion, I mean, you can go on and on with, with the counties we're talking about, Collier, et cetera. The, the Democrats are not communicating with voters at all. They uh, they rely on, on large media buys and in the media markets which contain these counties to communicate, and they're not doing anything on the ground. There's a lack of understanding of, uh, of what goes on. I know a lot of people in your neck of the woods in Orange County like to brag about uh, the numbers in Orange County getting better and the fact that Seminole County has now flipped uh, in the last, in the governor's race in 18 and, and presidential race in 20, uh, something we thought was on the map in the 1990s, right? The Seminole County, the 19, actually go back to the 1980s, which is probably the kind of uh, the, the heart of the Republican Party in the state of Florida. So symbolically, Seminole County flipping is a big deal. However, the adjoining county, Volusia, was also the most Democratic major county, large county outside of South Florida in uh, the 1980s and 1990s. It is now uh, a reliably Republican county. Um, I mean, in fact, that's recently, 2008, Obama carried the The Orlando metropolitan area, or sorry, the Orlando media market, this is really important for all of the crowing in Orange County about the success of, of, of Orange County. You saw the um, Orlando media market uh, be basically 50-50 because Lake County is so heavily Republican. Brevard County is higher turnout, so heavily Republican now. Highest turnout in Brevard in a long time um, in, a, in a general election. Volusia has become much more Republican. It used to be very Democratic, as I said. And then you have all, all the other outlawing counties, Sumter County is actually in the Orlando media market. Osceola County was a county where, uh, where and it's not been talked about much, but Osceola County divided its four and a half point force than Clinton did. So... Uh, and, and trust me, those uh, those voters there weren't motivated by the term socialism. They're not going to vote for, for Trump. Um, so the fact is you have these Democratic groups, these NGOs, these human-led legislature and Republican-led executive branch, these people who have shown no interest in uh, in working outside of their, 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 their comfort zone and, in addition, have, seem to have no awareness of what is uh, what what the rest of the state looks like. I mean, they drive through these places, right? They drive from Tallahassee to the fancy business in, in Orlando or in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, right? And they, they just drive through all these places and pass all these places and assume they're all like these very small towns. And I keep hearing Democrats say, well, the rural vote. I'm telling you, Pasco County is not rural, okay? The counties 
counties are growing at a much higher rate than the rest of the state. The Democrats are not communicating with those voters. Florida is a consistently transient state, and these are more working-class white, working-class Latinos. There are a lot of Latinos in, in this mix, and the Republicans are communicating with that. And they're coming to the state and developing a culture of voting for Republicans, uh, for state legislatures, which is uh, horrifying because if you're a working-class person and you're voting to have um, people like Richard Corcoran run, run, run the state house, and, and, and uh, the people that the Republicans have made their legislative leaders, and then you're voting against their own economic interests. But we've allowed that to happen, and part of the reason we've allowed it to happen, Brooke, I'm going to say this again, is because I think we have a class of consultants in this party who are very comfortable with it happening if they do business with those Republican lobbyists and those Republican legislators. You know, they have great relations. You know, they're people, they're people in... Uh, uh, they, people should be a little more careful about the social media accounts. I mean, there are people who are uh, who are renowned Democratic uh, operatives who post pictures of themselves as Republican legislators on social media. I mean, there's more than one person I'm talking about. Screen caps, without yeah. Any, yeah, without any sort of self-awareness. Just again, I don't like Mike Bloomberg's politics. I'm not a fan of Mike Bloomberg. I don't think... Uh, and I know this from talking to people kind of around the Bloomberg BS situation. I, I don't, they're, they're not very uh, uh, tolerant of this culture, and they're not going to be very indulgent of this culture. So um, these people better look out. Although the truth is, they could, they could very easily outlast Diaz and come back and take the party back over after. So um, until the, uh, the head of the stake is cut off, uh, I, I think Democrats are going to lose the stake. All righty. So, I'm going to cut that off a little bit now on the live feed, and I'm going to add these cutoff pieces for the uh, um, podcast. So we'll get that in post. We left off the last few seconds of this interview and in part one, but I'm going to have time to get all of Professor Wendy Lynn Lee in. So here you go with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee and Rick Spizak. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring you Professor Wendy Lynn Lee, uh, who has been uh, teaching philosophy uh, researching a variety of American political dilemmas, including uh, uh, spending some time researching the ultra-right, uh, working also on the problem of water pollution and fracking, uh, a woman of many talents and great intellect, uh, and a mind that I'd like to bring to you on a regular basis because I think the level of analysis that she brings to a variety of dilemmas, both uh, environmental and social, is profound and, and well worth listening to. Professor, welcome. Um, you've recently, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you've published a series of essays recently, treating on uh, the power, the reach, uh, and the, the misdeeds of the ultra right. The question I want to ask you before I, I, I give you a little time to kind of address it in overall, one of the points I want you to address is why is it that environmentalists who are trying to protect the environment are treated one way when the ultra-right 
armed to the teeth, openly threatening government officials, uh, the, the uh, voting integrity of our electoral system. Why did they get a wave of the hand while environmentalists are pursued to the last nth degree? Why do you think it is? How have we come to that place? Well, honestly, I think the answer to that question is not really complicated. Um, environmentalists are a direct threat to to corporate power. At the end, in the simplest sense, um, we are we pose a direct threat to profiteering, to the accumulation of wealth. Um, particularly wealth um, in virtue of many forms of extractivism. Um, and I include in that the extraction of um, petroleum, hydrocarbons, but also labor, um, animal bodies. Uh, extractivism is a broad term that covers uh, a whole wide range of um, exploitation of ultimately non-renewable resources and I think that also includes labor um, and indeed the far right only pose a danger to something I think ultimately regarded by large corporations by the multinationals as less valuable um, namely uh, human life and particularly the lives of black and brown uh, persons so you know, I think at the end of the day, this is about money, who has it, who keeps it, and who wields it. When, when we see the disparate treatment of African Americans uh, in, the, in their confrontations with uh, what is our legal system, and what we see when we see armed men storming a capital, or in the case of... Uh, the murders uh, during the protests, um, the white nationalists get kid glove care and the average African-American or uh, citizen of, of color uh, mm -hmm. is, is, is absolutely treated as disposable. And vilified and demonized, yeah. Um, well, and uh, indeed, some uh, affiliation with that far right, for example, the uh, notorious Proud Boys uh, originated, um, you know, in the uh, sort of fevered brain of, of folks like Gavin McGinnis. Um, those folks are not, they're not merely given a pass in many cases. They're uh, actively egged on by our now outgoing but profoundly corrupt, not to mention whiny, um, president or now ex-president President Trump who calls out to them to what stand back and and stand by and they are clearly plainly emboldened by that they they clearly understand that as the signal that it is and it you know it'll be really interesting to see where these figures and organizations land once the 20th of January has come, and we have um, President 46, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris in office. Um, I, I don't pretend to know what, what will then transpire 
um, I think maybe we'll see a period of time where these organizations, these groups will, will be a bit demoralized and may go back underground. But, but I think we know that they will reappear. And I think that we know that because they're so willing to resort to violence, um, and violence not merely against property, but against people, um, we will, I think, see their resurgence um, in new, even more terrorizing forms, um, even if they're um, striking from something like something more like an, an, an underground. Um, we, we won't see, I think, as many public visible displays for a little while. But I, I fear, and I deeply hope I'm wrong, that we will see, for example, more attacks on synagogues or more attacks on traditionally African-American churches or more attacks on mosques. Um, I, I don't know, but I, these are the things that worry me. Well, that leads me to my next question, and, and I, I don't want to spend all our time on this as important a topic is. There's too many other things I want to talk to you about. My, my, my kind of ultimate wrap-up question on this in this area is given what's a good way to put it? Given the uh, bridge building that we can expect from the Biden Harris team, mm -hmm. do you think they have the stomach for prosecutions of these excesses, these illegal actions of the ultra right, as well as the Trump team? Or is this going to be another one, well, we just won't look backwards, we'll look forwards? Do you think they have a stomach for any kind of prosecutions? I think they have to. I think that they, that they, must, they must curry, that they must um, have the courage for this, because otherwise they are effectively aiding and abetting um, a... An, an undercurrent in American culture that is vicious, um, that is um, morally indefensible, and that is not going to go away. So I think they have to, um, at, at least, they have to um, seek out um, justice and fairness so that all of the rest of us, and particularly, again, African-American persons, um, brown persons, Native American persons, can begin to feel safe in their own country. You know, one of the, the issues that arises in this whole arena here is, uh, I, I think it's part and parcel, the, the absolutely bizarre arguments made by Team Trump in the legal system. You know, they, they had warned us, they'd telegraphed for months and months and months. They were going to the mat, which they regard as their cushy Supreme Court, padded with all those Trumpers in there. Uh, they were going to go to court. We knew this. This was part of their, their modus operandi. Uh, instead of an election scheme, they were going to the courts. They told us in advance. Mm -hmm. What do you think explains what has to be characterized as these bizarre off-the-wall arguments with all of that prep time this is the best argument they can make that the ghost of, of Chavez is is behind this 
<laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what, but then again, what explained a great deal of the decision making over the course of the Trump administration, um, other than just a grotesque theatrical incompetence um, combined <laughs> with, with greed, with this, you know, um, unvarnished, unrelenting um, charlatanism, you know, combined with just a kind of, of psychotic self-absorption on his part and on the part of many of his psychopaths. I mean, I, it's it's hard, honestly, to find words adequate. I leave that to the historians, I guess, um, that, that really fully capture um, not not just the the psychosis of this administration, but the the damage that it will have done to American democracy. But you know, I I, I want to follow that up. Uh, almost immediately by noting that I think among the important things that we have learned as a citizenry is that entirely too many of our fellow citizens and I don't mean folks in power I just mean folks have really no interest in democracy at all other than their you know their freedom to carry weapons or their freedom to, um, you know, buy things made by small children um, in Vietnam. Um, what, you know, they, I, I am as much dismayed and disappointed in many of my fellow citizens who are willing to go along with this absurd charade um, of, a, of a claim that the election was stolen. I, you know, I, I just... I am as much dismayed in them as I am in the Trump administration. Well, you know, I, I think there's a there's a bizarre kind of uh, uh, beauty, if you will, to to these arguments that all the institutions are against Trump: the CIA, the FBI, the voting system, the governors. You know, they they've made a case for such extreme paranoia. And and I think you're right. Now, what this says, it says as much about America as it does about these these grotesque gargoyles of an election uh, official that, that they can make these kind of claims and that people take these claims seriously. Obviously, thank goodness, the court doesn't. And the fact that he's fired so many people in the security system and in the... In the national intelligence community uh, that obviously shows that not everyone's prepared to go along with this madness but it really it it speaks so much to what the American public will tolerate Um, is this a failure of education is it a failure to to teach history to teach civics as a philosopher where do we how do we move toward a saner more uh, electorally educated Electorate. Well, certainly the lion's share of the answer to that question is in education. Um, it's as if we've been Jerry Springered. You know, it's as if the, yeah. the country has been turned into this just 
willfully ignorant episode of Jerry Springer. And, you know, I acknowledge that perhaps that sounds arrogant on my part, but a democracy cannot afford an illiterate, a politically and morally illiterate public. And when I was a kid, which I acknowledge was a thousand years ago, um, (laughs) we were still taking civics. Um, in the seventh grade, um, we were still taking civics. We still did something called the mock Congress. Um, this is seventh grade in Colorado Springs. Um, and where we, why, where and why we stopped teaching those courses and having those sorts of expectations about civic literacy, about what is in the Constitution, what is the Bill of Rights, um, why did we need to write a Bill of Rights, right? What, what is the Declaration of Independence? What are the three branches of government? Just basic, basic stuff that a democracy cannot survive without. And I mean, we will have come as certainly as close, in, at least in my own lifetime, to the end of this grand experiment in working toward a democracy. I, I'm not sure I, I ever thought that that my country was a democracy sure but it but it had promise there was there was hope um and it is staggering to me how easily that capital was squandered in this administration and and by by my own fellow citizens do you think that we can simultaneously hold the Republicans in Congress responsible for their dereliction of duty and somehow get them on board to move to a saner government response to this COVID crisis? I don't know. I think it probably hangs on the election in Georgia. I wonder how can the people of Kentucky continue to put that that senator in Washington okay. D.C., it is puzzling. I, yeah, I don't. What I actually think about that is that anyone who's really given that question and a number of others like it, right? We could be talking about Mitch McConnell, Lindsey sure. Graham, soon. Um, Louis Gohmert, Ted Cruz, I mean, this list just goes on and on. Um, Ron Johnson, how, I don't, I think that those of us who really tried to think through that question have to acknowledge that there is no adequate answer for that that level of, of willful ignorance and stupidity. Uh, is it inertia? Is it? Is it, it, it? It. I don't even think it's ideological. I don't even think it's ideological, really. I. It, I don't think it's as smart as that. Um, and and it is. It is fearful because among the things that we have learned, and maybe I'm just saying the same thing in a different way. We learn. We have learned how the Nazis could come to power. Right. These folks may not be the Nazis. But we we now know how how that could happen, and we are we are risking that again as a country unless we decide 
to be thinking citizens again. It's, uh, it's pretty sobering stuff, that's for sure. Um, I heard uh, just yesterday that the governor of Florida, uh, who is, uh, well, let, let's be generous, a Trump enthusiast uh, of the First Order, he is still disbelieving in masks. And he's, <laughs> yeah. he's still disbelieving in any kind of restrictions on the Commonwealth. And, I mean... Cynicism, the, the direct line between cynicism and Darwinianism because, <laughs> seems to keep getting highlighted here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if these people are going to continue to deny science yeah. vehemently at the top of their lungs and encourage kind of this, this proud ignorance... Uh, the best thing you can say about it is it's a, it's so self-defeating that it's going to thin their herd if it's going to thin anybody's herd, for God's sakes. Yeah, I I um, I very much appreciate um, that cynicism, and uh, I'm sure I'm not the first person to think things like, you know, Man, Ron DeSantis, you know, <laughs> could you just, you know, like, yeah, keep going to parties and stuff, buddy. Um, you know, maybe take yourself out of the gene pool. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't wish that on anyone. No. I don't wish that even on him. I don't wish suffering on, on anyone ever under any circumstances. At, but I appreciate the cynicism because the the irony is is so great. It is the very people who are perhaps the greatest threat to the country who also seem to be happily the most willfully reckless. Um, you know, and at some point in your head, you know, you just you're kind of at. You know, I've told you, I've told you, we've told you, we've all told you, the scientists told you, the mathematicians have said, right, can you not read, can you not think, can you not count, can you not count? Okay, go. <laughs> you just, you know, you just, you become sort of, it's it's demoralizing to, to, to watch. And it's his children, you know, it's these folks' children, I, I think I feel the worst for yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, given the most rosy assessment of the delivery times of this uh, uh, instant uh, vaccine that has been rushed through, uh, with with special attention being paid to the profiteering, how important it is for these companies to gouge the American public and yeah. and then sell us these these uh, publicly funded drugs. At, a, at a, an exorbitant cost, uh, it being maybe next fall, maybe next winter, maybe even the spring of 22. Uh, obviously, these kind of constraints are with us. And, you know, to say to the public, well, we know that you're tired of this. We know that you're bored with it. Um, what What part of this, what part of the public will of the public good is is treating this idea as a subject of boredom instead of a subject that needs to be attended to as a matter of life and death. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think my response to that, to that public is, um, I don't, I don't, I don't care about your boredom. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I, I have a family. I would like to see my family, right? But I would like to see my family for years to come. And I would like to see the el more elderly people in my family, like my mother, be survive to see my grandchild. And so would millions and millions of us. So, you know, I, I don't think, I think I have increasingly little patience with that. Um, we have both a moral duty as human beings, and I would even go as far as to say a patriotic duty as Americans, a, a duty as world citizens to stick it out. We have to we have to stick this out. We have to stay home. We have to wear masks. We have to not go to parties. We have to not go to bars, right? We the the Supreme Court decision about churches, I think, is just an obscenity, and it's anti-science, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Eventually, we will come out of this pandemic, and we will face another one, and we are setting up the conditions for the next pandemic um, in our just grotesque failure to confront climate change, which is intimately related to producing the conditions of um, of habitat encroachment that are going to set us up for the for the next pandemic, right? So, you know, if we don't pay close attention to the science of both of these things, right, the dealing with our boredom, that is the least of our problems. It's our failure to comprehend and heed the science that is far greater problem. Absolutely. The thing that I find so immensely troubling is that since so many citizens seem intent on flouting their ignorance, of denying the science, of failing to comprehend the most basic uh, understanding of what it means to be in an infectious environment, that our, our fellow citizens in the medical profession on the front lines are going to pay a heavy price for that ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it is, it is unnecessary. It did not, it did not, this did not have to happen. And we all see the numbers every day. Um, I live in a state with a, a Democratic governor, but that is otherwise a, a red state, um, whose, whose many, too many of its citizens regard the issue of masking as some matter of freedom. And I think, honestly, that that was the moment when I recognized, when I began to see those protests that just misidentified the refusal to wear a mask as some kind of civil liberty or the moral requirement to wear one as some kind of affront to civil liberty. I think that was the moment I realized that too many of my fellows do not know what civil liberty is, do not know what responsibilities it entails, and hence just do not know what it means to live in a free country. Well, Professor, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I would love to see us end on a hopeful note. Uh, uh, do, you, uh, do you see um, 
a reasonably peaceful transition to the Biden-Harris administration next month? I don't know. I I I want to say yes. I want to say yes from the remnants, the dirty remnants of the Trump administration what his psychophantic cult members will do I suppose is anybody's guess but I can certainly say this much I I am really looking forward to that day because so I will have really strong objections to some of the policies even in the Biden administration sure Sure. We will, especially environmental policy, right. and we will see how that goes. We'll, yeah. we'll see how that goes, but um, at least we, at least I will be able to stand in a place where I can articulate my objections to people who might hear them. At least we will be able to stand on ground that is not constantly shifting with dilemmas and crises. Um, and and just absurdly stupid scandals, um, and so we can we can go back to a place where protests actually can be directed in some more hopeful, in some more positive, to some more positive place. That's that's what I'm really hoping is what happens after the 20th of January. Well, thank you so much. I wish you and your family every happiness. Please take care of yourself. We appreciate you so very much. You have a good day. Yes, and you you do the same. And we've got... Ginny Moloff on the line, ready to talk about the uh, stuff that's going on in Georgia. And uh, I was just watching on CNN uh, during the pre-records the debate between Warnock and Loeffler. And boy, oh boy, I really, uh, I'd really like to get her out of there. Hey, Ginny. (laughs) Sorry. Hey, Brooke. Okay. Well. what I'm going to talk about today is based on some reports from our friend, uh, journalist, um, Greg Pallas. And um, this is dealing with the no-car, no-vote standard for the judge Georgia runoff election. Sorry, I'm in bad voice. My asthma is kicking up tonight. Right before Thanksgiving, the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, basically crapped on low-income minority and student voters because he could What qualifies this specific change is the timing, right before the Georgia U.S. Senate runoff election, which will determine whether the GOP retains Senate majority or whether the Democrats will be able to have that slim majority. If Ossoff and Warnock win, then it's a 50-50 split. And that means the Vice President Kamala Harris will break any ties. That would put the Democrats in the majority, and that would end McConnell's reign of terror. Well, just last month, Raffensperger was being heralded by centrist Dems as some kind of election messiah when he rebuked Trump's ham-handed and illegal attempts to tamper with election results. And while I'm grateful that Raffensperger refused to potentially break several election laws, his electoral beatification, in other words, pathway to eventual sainthood, should be put on hold. 
Raffensperger's no saint, and he's no electoral hero either. Put bluntly, Raffensperger just has enough common sense to not commit any felonies on Trump's behalf. Now, Raffensperger has no problem, however, with maintaining Jim Crow, what I call Jim Crow 2.0, especially when the scheme we are going to talk about could steal the two U.S. Senate seats for the GOP incumbents, Senators Perdue and Leffler, especially when their seats, they said before, will determine whether the GOP and Mitch McConnell remain in majority control or the Dems will regain the Senate. So returning to our friend, renowned journalist and gaslight Greg Pallett, blow the whistle on Georgia's latest Jim Crow scheme, the no-car, no-vote emergency voter registration con job. Now, Pallas wrote, he and his team wrote on his website, um, on November 25th, the, quote, no-car, no-vote emergency Georgia registration roadblock. So the, the Monday of Thanksgiving week, Georgia's Board of Elections issued a, a, what they call a guidance directive and it allowed county election supervisors to block or question new registrations of voters who don't have a car that's registered in Georgia. So this would be an impediment, especially to low-income uh, voters, urban voters, and college students, and groups that the GOP in Georgia know vote overwhelmingly Democratic. And this is happening just prior to the January 5th runoff election. So the board acted after, again, Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State, sent out this notice on a Sunday afternoon before Thanksgiving calling for this emergency change of rules. Raffensperger convened the State Board of Elections emergency meeting hours later at 8 a.m. on Monday in Atlanta. The Palace Investigation Fund team actually joined that Zoom meeting along with the president of the Georgia NAACP, as well as the head of the Georgia Coalition for a People's Agenda, Helen Butler. So the highly questionable legal excuse, more semantic games engineered to subvert justice. The board announced, first of all, they didn't have to vote on this discriminatory rule, okay? Um, they could just adopt it as, as I said, for a guidance directive, but it would have the same power to block those registrations or at least delay them. Columbia University law professor Barbara Arnwine weighed in on this, and she's part of a federal lawsuit as well. And she says that this no car, no vote emergency dictum is, quote, a clear violation of the National Voter Registration Act of the NVRA. Now, Arnwine is also dean of America's Voting Rights Lawyers, and she's founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition. And she basically called this board the scam that it is. It's semantic game. Um, and basically, the state is getting around the NVRA, the National um, Voting Rights Law, excuse me, the National Voter Registration Act, by changing the, what they're calling this from a rule that would have to be voted on to just mere guidance. Okay? Because rule changes cannot be enacted within 90 days of an election according to that law. But online called it out and said, this is a scam. It, it, it's, quote, in substance, a change of rules. So on the surface, this change may, they can call it guidance, it's semantic trickery, but it, it basically is ludicrous as saying um, 
well, we're not going, we don't do torture, but we're going to call waterboarding just, you know, enhanced interrogation. It's that nonsensical. So the Georgia Secretary of State refused to answer any questions, though. Uh, the Palace Investigative Fund Assistant Producer Terry Manperl asked if the Secretary of State found just even a single case of somebody who's not from Georgia voting in a Georgia um, election, which is a felony. And uh, Manperl also said, quote, and if so, have you arrested them? No answer. This kind is really worthy of Trump, okay? And and this change doesn't stop people technically from voting if they don't have a car, but the way it slows, the way it really, in effect, stops people from voting is a registrar can challenge and delay a voter's registration until they have a hearing, where and in that hearing they'd be required to provide proof of residence. Well, by the time they have that hearing, the election would be over with. And, as, and because they've been challenged, practically speaking, a carless voter would basically not be able to vote in the runoff election then. So, you know, there's alleged grounds for this bogus challenge, more Jim Crow. Um, you know, again, the Jim Crow people in Georgia, the GOP, they're trying to claim that, you know, if you don't have a car there, then of course you must be a non-resident. And that these are people trying to commit the felony crime of illegal registration. So, you know, I feel like saying in this Christmas season, not yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, but yes, Virginia, this is Jim Crow all over again. And the guidance, again, directs registrars to check auto registration and, get this, at that registrar's discretion, they can challenge any vote, any voter that is. They can force the hearing. And so, you know, one of the accusations is this is also a form of a poll tax. No car, no vote. Um, and the ironic thing is that when Pallas did this report, this series of reports is, um, his own daughter got caught up in this. Her right to vote was challenged. <clears throat> Excuse me. I hate it. So then the president of the Georgia NAACP, Reverend James Woodall, told the Board of Elections that this new guidance rule, if you will, would, quote, dis lead to, quote, disenfranchisement of students, seniors, and retirees that often live in assisted home facilities. To suggest that newly registered voters could possibly be frauds is very dangerous, end quote. Georgia State University professor Liz Throop also stated, quote, Secretary Brad Raffensperger has recently and repeatedly assured the media that he is a Republican and he hopes Republican candidates succeed in current elections. We all know which party this rule favors, older, wealthier, better established Georgia. The carless, the young, and the poor are most likely to be disadvantaged. So Palace team attorneys, <coughs> they reviewed the legal options, and they successfully sued um, Georgia's Secretary of State earlier in the year, uh, obtaining a federal court ruling that required the state to open its secret correspondence on racially biased vote roll purges. 
Now, one of the things the palace tells people is this. Um, the deadline to um, register for the this runoff vote in the, for the, the Senate, um, the registration deadline is December 7th. And if you find yourself challenged, blocked, or really impeded in any way, um, you email them, let them know at Georgia at GregPalace.com. Now, again, from Palace website, <coughs> um, they reprinted a piece that Jenny Singh for Newsweek published on December 2nd. Georgia was hit with another lawsuit. And um, this wasn't from Trump, though. This is a lawsuit that basically alleges that the state incorrectly canceled almost 200,000 voter registrations, and specifically 198,000. And the reason was that they were, they were incorrectly believed to have moved. And this is right in time for that Senate runoff again. The ACLU issued a report on Georgia's voter purge, which is another chink in Raffensperger's armor. Um, Palace of the Palace Investigative Fund led the investigation. They hired firms to cross-reference a list of over 300,000 citizens who would be removed from Georgia's voter rolls um, using postal service records and the advanced address list hygiene. And, um, excuse me. <coughs> so this case is going to federal court. And people wondering why the runoff election in the first place. Well, Georgia's kind of odd. The Senate candidate has to receive at least 50% of the vote in order to be declared the winner. None of the candidates met that threshold, so now there's a runoff election January 6th. And uh, <coughs> I'm sorry tonight. Mm. So Trumpian interference. Trump's campaigning for Leffler and Purdue. He's through Kaylee McEnany, his press secretary, as well as himself personally. He's tried to put pressure on Governor, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp uh, on a couple of different things. One of them would be to demand that the legislature um, throw out the electoral votes that were certified for Biden. And, that, and just as we talked about before, have the legislature create their own slate of electors for Georgia that would basically be sent to, to vote for Trump. The other thing is that he's still, he's still, Trump's still claiming there's massive election fraud, even though they haven't offered a shred of evidence to back up that allegation. And um, so Gerald Griggs is an attorney who filed this purge voter lawsuit, and he's confident that it's going to be successful. It's, quote, grounded in facts and the law. And um, to quote Griggs, that we have to make sure that we protect the most fundamental right in the birthplace of civil rights. Now, again, Georgia has this huge voter purge, and Stacey Abrams has been fighting this left and right. And it happens, sometimes it's called voter caging, where basically they will send postcards to different voters in certain specific areas that are known to be high uh, in minority populations or students or Democratic voters. And a lot of times people think it's junk mail. And it's kind of unclear. They just want you to verify your residence. And you think, why should I have to do that? Well, if you don't return that card, 
in a lot of states, what they do then is they assume you don't live there anymore and they cancel your voter registration. And that's known as voter caging. Now, <clears throat> the Georgia Deputy Secretary of the Georgia Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State, Jordan Fuchs, um, again, another one, off slander and no facts. In September, Fuchs called Palast, quote, a Stacey Abrams shill um, on CNN and dismissed the research in the ACLU of Georgia report. Now, apparently Fuchs is allergic to the most basic research. Palast has written extensively on this type of voter purge, which, as I said, he called voter caging, since at least 2004. Palace has written two books on the subject. These facts can be obtained in under five minutes online. But that didn't stop Fuchs from continually slandering Palace and Stacey Abrams and anybody who got in his way. So Fuchs pointed this 2019 story by a WSB TV journalist, Justin Gray. And this story, this Gray checked 30 homes, 30, in a West Atlanta neighborhood and found that all the homes had been those, the people in those homes had either died or moved away. And so they were, these people were listed as no contact. And since, you know, since they hadn't voted in elections or uh, responded to the mailings, they were just listed as no contact. And again, since when does an inform, my question is this, I'd like to ask Mr. Fuchs, the Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State, since one does an informal survey of 30 homes, 30 individual homes, constitute evidence of alleged massive voter fraud to the tune of almost 200,000 voters. So, but again, facts don't really matter to the GOP. Now, Raffensperger keeps denying that the removal of these registrations wasn't a purge. He called it list maintenance. Talk about Orwellian speak. And, um, and it was necessary to, quote, maintain the integrity of the election. So Fair Fight Action, which was founded by Stacey Abrams in, 19, in 2019 to really deal with this issue of voter, massive voter suppression, um, they, she fought against, and her organization fought against the removal of about 120,000 voters, and the state restored about 22,000 names. But there was, in this case, Judge Steve Jones ruled, um, he, basically Judge Steve Jones ruled that he upheld a decision to remove almost 100,000 names from the voter rolls. Steve Jones, Judge Steve Jones decided that fair fight action didn't prove the state's decision that canceling registration of alleged inactive voters, whether it was proof or not, violated the Constitution. And my question to Judge Jones is, and exactly, what exactly would he consider a constitutional violation? It looks pretty obvious to me. Uh, again, Columbia University Law School professor and a plaintiff in the suit, um, Barbara, uh, that was filed uh, Wednesday, uh, Barbara Arnwine called the lawsuit absolutely critical. Um, and Arnwine was quoted as saying, quote, they stated to the world they, want to part they wanted to participate in our democracy. Then you remove them for unlawful, woeful reasons, outrageous, end quote. Now, the Georgia lawsuit is the idea is to restore voters to, you know, being able to vote again. And, you know, the lawsuit really is pushing for a preliminary injunction to stop Raffensperger and his office from prohibiting these citizens 
from volume. So, you know, this is the case. Um, so the plaintiffs are Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter, Barbara Arnwine of the Transformative Justice Coalition, and C.K. Hoffler of Rainbow Push. And basically the summation is the state of Georgia, as I said before, wrongly purged or canceled voter registration of voters, claiming that they had moved, but these voters hadn't moved. And they sent these thousands of voters these postal change of address forms. Um, and the Secretary of the State said they sent these, but the post office said, no, the state didn't. So I remember a time when misdirecting mail or interfering with the mail was a federal felony. The post office saying they never sent, the state never sent these letters. Now, the, like I said, the timing is very suspicious. I'm going to skip down because we're running short on time right now to some of the more damning specifics on what, you know, the summary of findings in the Georgia voter registration purge. Okay, so, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so one thing they look at is national change of address, or NCOA. Um, what Georgia claims is that national change of address, there were 108,000 people, return mail 84,000, 306, no vote, no contact to elections. In other words, these people, 120,561 120, people either didn't vote according to the state of Georgia or you couldn't contact them to make sure they still live where they did. The total mover registrations canceled by the Georgia Secretary of State was 313,243. And this was verified by, um, and then, oh, people that moved that were verified by the U.S. Postal Service and the national change of address was 64,411. But that number, total mover, total mover registrations canceled. These were people whose registrations, voter registrations were canceled because supposedly they moved, whether they did or didn't, by the Georgia Secretary of State, Mr. Raffensperger, was over 300,000. Specifically, 313,243. Not verified as moved. These are people, they didn't verify if these people moved or not, but they were stricken from the rolls, 247,832. Um, and here's the most, I'm skipping ahead, these aren't all the statistics, but most, two of the most damning pieces of evidence against Georgia and its Secretary of State. People that had not moved, their addresses were verified and mailable, but they had been stricken from the record. Strict, they, their voter registration had been canceled. 195,181. And people that had not moved, their voter registrations had been purged. They had not moved, even though the state claimed they did. Their address was verified by the Postal Service. 198,351. In short, the Georgia purge list error rate was over 63%, specifically 63.3%. So the conclusion, in short, like far too many states, Georgia does not have a problem with voter fraud. The problem has been massive voter suppression of various groups most likely to vote for Democrats or progressives. This report compiled by the Palace investigative team clearly documents that inconvenient truth. In 2018, Palace team acquired a list of over 
a half million purged voters in Georgia. I'm going to say that again. In 2018, Pallet's team acquired a list of over a half million purged voters in Georgia. They were purged from the voter rolls as ordered by the Georgia Secretary of State, Mr. Raffensperger, in 2017. Examples of this obvious Jim Crow tactic abound, and here's a particularly egregious example, but it's, it's almost a little funny. It's about this little lady. Um, she's 92, Miss Christine Jordan of Atlanta. In 2018, when she was 92, she entered her polling station. She voted there for 50 years. She was turned away because the state had canceled her voter registration, and they alleged she had moved from her registration address. Now, to verify the state's assertion claim, and I'm just going to quote this, quote, Palestine team visited Ms. Jordan at, um, at the home where she has lived for more than half a century, which she proved by showing us photos of her having dinner at that home with her cousin, the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Let that sink in for a second. Again, these people, Jim Crow, especially in Georgia, they have no shame. They not only lie and slander and libel and defame, but they do so stupidly and they do so repeatedly. Such disgraceful behavior seems to be routine in Georgia. As documented, Pallas began his investigation into voter suppression in Georgia starting back in 2013. This is seven years later. His investigation was comprehensive and thorough. It did not constitute a single suburban neighborhood of 30 individual homes or a series of rambling tweets. It was statistically valid by any statistician standard. Jim Crow is alive and well in Georgia, and the national GOP has reveled in it. Just today, Kaylee McEnany, White House Press Secretary, threatened the Georgia Secretary of State by suggesting on air that Governor Kemp should revoke some of the Secretary's budget if he continued to refuse a push to demand that the Georgia legislature subvert the public vote and create their own slate of GOP electors loyal to Trump. Now, to those who would claim that, who's this Mr. Pallas? Who's Greg Pallas? Well, he has been a fixture on the BBC, Rolling Stone. He's won several awards. Um, and his investigative fund is a project of the 501c3 nonpartisan, not-for-profit Sustainable Markets Foundation in New York. And since 2013, he's directed inquiry into a series of voter purges in Georgia, um, removals of several hundred thousand citizens from Georgia's registra voter registration roll specifically. Um, in addition to his own investigators and database specialists and attorneys, Palace Investigative Fund retained five consulting firms that are expert in the field of advanced address list hygiene. And that's apparently something that's critical to this analysis. Pallas and his team were, quote, originally retained by Al Jazeera America, Rolling Stone Magazine, and Salon.com. So, again, Pallas is an institution in and of himself, and, you know, if the GOP had any shame, they would be embarrassed, but they don't. And, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, and little Miss Christine Jordan, with her picture having dinner, all those years ago, at her home, one she still lives in, 
with her cousin, the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I think says it all. And that's my report. Wow, things are just crazy in uh, Georgia. And, uh, and, and you know, we, we've known that the that Kemp and that whole gang is uh, crooked as can be, especially when it comes to election right. integrity. And so none of this is uh, – the good news is that none of this is surprising and everyone has been uh, very vigilant for it. And I'm very glad that Palest has filed that lawsuit. Right. And well, and I, I think that's this. the thing that's stopping Kemp and – Making Raffensperger slow down a little bit because they're not willing to go to they're not willing to go to prison for Trump, uh-huh. and that's the only thing that's stopping them. Mm-hmm. Seriously, in my opinion, right. And I, I well, think we have to pursue criminal prosecution of all these people. Uh, agreed, absolutely. No more of this look look for, don't look back look forward nonsense because if they're right. allowed to get away with this, they're going to continue to do so. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much, Janine. Uh, and we will see you again next week. And folks, remember on Thursdays is the Environmental Justice Report. at uh, And this week we're at, at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. And this week we're doing a report on the proposed crime of ecocide. Okay. Wow. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, we will see you again next week. And everybody tune in to the Environmental Justice Report. And that is it for me this week. And I will see you again next week. How about that? Yeah. That's what we'll do. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.